In Jude 16, Jude concluded the major portion of his epistle. Now in verse 17, he transitions from speaking primarily about false teachers to again addressing the slandered and scattered saints. Previously in verse 3, Jude spoke directly to his readers and addressed them as the beloved, agapetas. Here in verse 17, Jude again addresses his readers as the beloved. And his use of this term implies that he's writing out of sacrificial fatherly love. Out of the 29 times in the New Testament in which the term beloved is used, 18 of those are in the general epistles and used by pastors or shepherds writing to their congregation or sheep. Here, Pastor Jude, out of love, begins a series of final charges to his beloved readers. He charges them to remember, to remain in God's love, and to show mercy. Now, specifically in Jude 17 to 19, Jude charges the beloved to remember the apostolic word and the false teachers. Regarding the false teachers, Jude brings three more charges against them. They cause division, are worldly-minded, and are devoid of the Spirit. These three charges form the 11th triad of the epistle of Jude. To recap then, we have so far 11 triads used in the epistle of Jude. We have three actions of God in verse 1. We are the called, the loved, and kept by God. In verse 2, we have three blessings on the saints. We've received mercy, peace, and love. In verse 4, we have the first three charges against false teachers. They crept in unaware, turned grace into licentiousness, and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. In verses 5 through 7, Jude gave us three examples of judgment. That of Israel in the wilderness, the fallen angels in Genesis 6, and Sodom and Gomorrah. We have the second set of three charges against the false teachers in verse 8. They defile the flesh, reject authority, revile angels. Jude follows that in verse 11 with three examples of wickedness, Cain, Balaam, and Korah. We then in verse 12 are given three descriptions of false teachers. They're hidden reefs, selfish shepherds, waterless clouds. Verse 13, three more descriptions of false teachers. They're autumn trees, wild waves, and wandering stars. In verse 15, we have three reasons for the second coming. To execute judgment on all, to convict the ungodly of their works, and to convict the ungodly of their words. Then in verse 16, we had three more charges against false teachers. They complain, they grumble, they follow their lust, and they speak arrogant and flattering words. And then, now in verse 19, we have another set of three charges against the false teachers. That is, they cause division, they're worldly-minded, and they're devoid of the Spirit. Jude begins the first of his final three charges to the Lord's sheep in his care, he charges us to remember. So we have a charge to remember the apostolic word in verse 17 and 18. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lust. Again, Jude wants us to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles. Now, the verb ought to remember 
memneskomai, means to recall past words from memory. This verb was used in 2 Peter 3.2. Remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Now previously in verse 5, Jude complimented his readers for their knowledge of the Old Testament. He said, I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all. So these believers remembered the words of the prophets. That is, these believers remembered the words of the prophet. That is, they committed the Old Testament scriptures to memory. Now, however, Jude charges us to remember the words spoken beforehand by the apostles. Now, the verb remember here is an imperative, underscoring that failure to do so will have detrimental consequences to our spiritual lives. The words to remember are those spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, an apostle, apostolos, is one sent out as a sanctioned representative or messenger. And you'll see here that Jude qualifies these apostles by the phrase of our Lord Jesus Christ. Such a qualification implies that an apostle is sent out as a sanctioned representative or messenger of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, typically, when you hear the term apostle, you think in terms of the 12 apostles. To be of the 12, you had to meet two criteria. First, you had to have been with Jesus from his baptism till his ascension. And second, you must have been an eyewitness of the resurrection. Acts chapter 1, 21 and 22. Therefore, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Now, others, though, were also named apostles who were not counted among the twelve. In Luke chapter 9, verse 1 and 2, it says, He called the twelve together. This is the twelve apostles. He gave them power and authority over the demons and to heal diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. Now, one chapter over, Luke chapter 10 and verse 1. Now, after this, that's the appointing of the twelve, the Lord appointed seventy others and sent them out in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. Now, Noting Christ's post-resurrection appearances in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul notes that Jesus appeared first to Peter, then to the twelve, and then to all the apostles. 1 Corinthians 15, 5 and 8. He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. See, Paul made a particular distinction between the twelve and all the apostles. Indeed, the twelve were apostles, but others were also commissioned and sent out as messengers of the Lord. Men and women, such as Barnabas, Paul, Andronicus, Junia, Titus, James, the brother of Jesus, Epaphroditus, and Silas, were commissioned as apostles or missionaries sent out by the church. Acts 14, 14, but when the apostles, plural, Barnabas and Paul heard of it, Romans 16, 7, greet Andronicus and Junia, who are outstanding among the apostles. 2 Corinthians eight twenty three as for Titus, our brethren, 
They are the messengers, the apostolos of the churches. Galatians 1.19 But I did not see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Philippians 2.25 but, but I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, your messenger, or apostolos. Philippians 2.25 1 Thessalonians 2.6, as apostles of Christ, we, Paul and Silas, might have asserted our authority. Now, what the church presently calls a missionary functions as an apostle. So having identified the apostles, the expositor, that's us as students of scripture, must focus on the words spoken beforehand by the apostles, which we are charged to remember. Now, the term words, rhema, does not refer to the gospel, but instead to a particular saying or statement of the apostles. Spoken beforehand means to predict or tell something in advance. Hence, these words were prophetic. Peter previously used this term in 2 Peter 3.2 to refer to the prophecies of the Old Testament. Remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets. That these words or statements were told in advance indicates that the apostles had previously given this warning. Notice the verb in verse 18, they were saying, lego. It's in the imperfect tense indicating that the, this warning was given repeatedly. And indeed, the apostles predicted that false teachers would come. 2 Corinthians 11, 13. For such men are false prophets, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Philippians 3, 18. For many walk of whom I've often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 5. Realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. 2 Peter 2.1, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. So as not to leave us wondering as to which specific warning, Jude provides the statement in question. Verse 18, in the last times, there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lust. Now, this particular statement was previously quoted by the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 3.3, 3, knowing this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mockings following after their own lust. Now, the last days or last times is a common Old Testament prophetic phrase. Isaiah 2.2, for example, it will come about in the last days, the mountains of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. Ezekiel 38.16, it shall come about in the last days that I will bring you against my land. 
Hosea 3, 5, Afterwards the son of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. By applying the prophecy of Joel 2, 28-32 to the events of Pentecost, Peter understood that the last days arrived with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Acts 2.17 It shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. Paul also understood that the revelation he received was being given during the last days. Hebrews 1.2 In these last days he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And so, my friends, you need to understand here that the last days are not some future period. Indeed, they are the period between Christ's first and second advent. Believer, you and I are living in the last days. Now, both Peter and Jude state that during the last days there will be mockers. Mockers refers to those who treat something with skepticism, contempt, or derision. See, the Old Testament equivalent, by the way, to mockers is scoffers. Psalm 1.1 How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Proverbs 1.22 How long, O naive ones, will you love being simple-minded? And scoffers delight themselves in scoffing, and fools hate knowledge. See, these scoffers despise those things associated with God's law and morality. Now, since the focus of Jude 14 to 16 was upon the second coming, we can deduce that the false teachers hold the doctrine of Christ's second coming in skepticism, contempt, and derision. Indeed, as 2 Peter 3, 4 states, these false teachers were asking, where is the promise of his coming? The where in their question underscores their skepticism and contempt. See, the Bible records a series of where questions that demonstrate the skepticism or contempt of those asking the question. Psalm 79.10, Psalm 115.2, Joel 2.17, Micah 7.10 record the skepticism of the nations. Where is their God, they asked. In Jeremiah 17.5, those opposed to Jeremiah asked, where's the word of the Lord? Apostate Israel was skeptical of God when they asked in Malachi 2.17, where's the God of justice? Again, these mockers or false teachers Ask, where is the promise of his coming? Now, the term promise, apangalia, refers to a verbal commitment or pledge to do something in the future. See, the prophecies of God in Scripture are promises or verbal pledges from God. And we should note here that God's promises do not fail. Joshua 21.45 Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. Romans 4.21, we are fully assured that what God has promised, he is able also to perform. 
2 Corinthians 1.20, For as many as are the promises of God, in Him they are yes. And the reason His promises do not fail is because God cannot, listen carefully, cannot lie. Numbers 23.19, God is not a man that He should lie. Titus 1.2, In hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised long ago. Hebrews 6.18, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. So if you claim that God's promises have failed, you are calling God a liar. Now notice here, they're asking where is the promise of his coming? His coming refers to Christ's second coming as found in Mark 13.24-27 which says, but in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, the powers that are in heaven will be shaken, then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. The word coming in Jude, word coming in Mark 13, parousia, referring to the same thing, the second coming of Christ. Now according here to Mark 13, 24-27, there are five events beginning with the tribulation, that must precede the return of Christ. Ignoring all the facts about Christ's second coming, these false teachers argue that His coming has not and will not happen. See, these mockers, these false teachers, have such contempt, such derision for Christ's second coming, that they follow after their own ungodly lust. Ungodly, asebia, a term used four times back in verse 15 of Jude, refers to living in a manner opposite of God's demands. And what is ungodly is their lust, these excessive self-indulgent cravings to satisfy their carnal appetites. See, their excessive self-indulgent cravings are diametrically opposed to God's law. In great detail, both Jude and Peter have demonstrated to us that these false teachers live in opposition to God's law merely to satisfy their own carnal desires. And believer, you must beware of your carnal appetites. If you live to satisfy your immorality or your impurity, it's going to result in false doctrine as well. If you believe false doctrine it's going to result in you engaging in immorality and impurity. Now Jude charges us to remember this apostolic word of warning about the mockers. See, they sneak into the church and attempt to cause believers to question or doubt the second coming of Christ. Because if they can undermine the certainty of Christ's return, then they can lure and seduce us into participating in their excessive self-indulgent ungodliness. We need to remember the purpose of Christ's second coming is to judge. If there's no judge, then people can choose a lifestyle of sin without consequence. So my friends, the best weapon we have against false teaching is the apostolic word, and by extension, the whole of Scripture, the sword of the Spirit. See, we must remember the words, the words of the apostles, the words of the prophets. And wielding that sword of truth means recalling to mind the scriptures. And the only way in which we can recall the scriptures is to remember them by committing them to memory. Not only are we to remember the apostolic word, 
But now we're charged in verse 19 that we also must remember who the false teachers are. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. Remember who the false teachers are. For the third time in his epistle, Jude invoked the contemptuous these, referring to those false teachers who sneak into the church. The reason he charges us to remember the apostolic word is because of who the false teachers are. Now Jude previously connected Jude's prophet, or excuse me, Enoch's prophecy to the false teachers. Now he connects the apostles' prophecy to the false teachers. And it's interesting that Enoch's prophecy focused on Christ's second coming, and the apostles' prophecy focused on those who mocked the second coming. Now we've already seen nine charges against these false teachers. Now we have three more. Charge 10 through 12. And so in order to not be deceived by false teachers, we would do well to remember the various warnings or charges against them. The tenth charge is that they cause division. They cause division. Now the verb cause division is a rare term used only here in Scripture. It means to cause a group to split into opposing factions. See, the verb is in the present tense, implying that this causing division was the usual practice of these false teachers. Indeed, as Galatians 5, 19 and 20 tells us, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outburst of angers, dispute, dissensions, and factions. Now remember, these false teachers were antinomian Gnostics. Followers of Gnosticism were usually from the wealthy class who were more educated than others. As such, they viewed themselves as intellectually elite. And these, these individuals infiltrated the church and attempted to create their own spiritual aristocracy by appealing to the wealthy. See, in doing so, they created the classic us-versus-them mentality between the rich and the poor in the church. Now, Paul dealt with this issue of divisions in the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians 1.10 Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, the term there, divisions, schisma, is the root term behind the English ter term schism. It refers to the division or split of a group into factions. And Paul states that there are to be no divisions or factions amongst genuine believers. Without a doubt, where division occurs, where schism occurs, it is due to outside interference and influence from a false teacher. That's why Paul commanded the Corinthians not to partake in the love feast with any so-called brother that is a false teacher. 1 Corinthians 5, 9-11 I wrote to you to not associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or idolater or reviler or drunkard or swindler not to even eat with such a one. The purpose of the love feast was to promote and foster Christian unity. 
In verse 3 to 12, Jude revealed that these false teachers sneak into the love feast to damage and destroy the unity of the church. Christian unity is destroyed by promoting divisions within the body. And in the New Testament, such divisions were usually centered upon ethnicity and class. Jew versus Gentile, and rich versus poor. And class division was evident in the Corinthians church. 1 Corinthians 11, 20-22. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. One is hungry, another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? He spent the first ten chapters addressing the issues of schisms and heresy. And now he's charging the Corinthian church with reducing the love feast to a feeding frenzy and drunken spectacle. The phrase, each one takes his own supper first, implies this feeding frenzy. And the phrase, one is hungry and others drunk, underscores the schismatic nature of the meal. What's going on here is that the upper class believers ate and drank with each other and left the table scraps for the lower class believers. Now here's the irony. The Corinthian church would not separate from unbelievers during communion, which God commanded. But they would separate the rich from the poor. Even today, my friends, this issue exists in the church of God. Churches are still divided by issues of ethnicity and class. And believers, we would do well to check ourselves and repent of any attitude of superiority, thinking ourselves better than others. The church on earth should be striving to look like the church in heaven. That is, individuals from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation worshiping Christ. As stated in Revelation 5.9. Now, not only are those causing divisions amongst class within the church, there are those in the church who cause division by showing partiality and favoritism. See, remember, Jude previously accused false teachers of showing partiality. See, these false teachers know that their approval is dependent upon how they are accepted. So what do they do? They show partiality. They flatter individuals who are in authority or who are influential. And when some are being favored and others ignored, it causes feelings of neglect and can ultimately result in division. And so believers, particularly leaders, must take every step not to show partiality or favoritism to one person over another. And one way you can determine whether or not you're showing partiality or favoritism is to examine if you do as much for those not in your circle of influence as you do for those within your circle. Heed the words, hear and heed the words of James 2, 1 to 4. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. If a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down by my footstool, have you not made distinctions amongst yourselves and become judges, listen to this, with evil 
motives. So the tenth charge was that they caused division. The eleventh charge against false teachers is that they're worldly-minded. Now the term worldly-minded, sukakas, means to follow one's natural or base instincts. It refers to being governed or controlled by one's appetites. Now the choice of sukakas is significant because it comes from the root term for the soul, suke. Now the soul refers to the immaterial part of a person and is something that we share with animals. Okay, We have souls, animals have souls. As Peter said in 2 Peter 2.12, false teachers are like unreasoning animals born as creatures of instinct. The term instinct translates the Greek term sukikos, translated in Jude as worldly-minded. Hence Jude's idea of worldly-minded is that the false teachers, like animals, are controlled by their base desires. This Greek term, sukikos, is also used in James 3.15 to describe the world's wisdom as natural or unspiritual. The wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, or unspiritual, demonic. James 3.15 You see, being worldly-minded is to be controlled by one's fallen nature, whereas being spiritually-minded is to be governed by a divine nature. 1 Corinthians 2.14, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. That false teachers are natural or unspiritual means that they do not understand or comprehend the things of God. That tells us these are not believers who have gone astray. These are unbelievers who are hell-bent and determined to deceive and destroy genuine believers. This is why Jude is driving this home time after time after time in this short epistle. Believer, we must be spiritually minded. If someone teaches that you can engage in worldly behavior and still be acceptable to God, so long as you keep certain rituals, rules, and regulations, beware, they are a worldly-minded false teacher. And a very popular false teaching today in this vein is something called carnal Christianity. See, carnal Christianity purports several false claims. First, it claims there's two types of Christians. You can be a spiritual Christian or a carnal Christian. The truth of the matter is, there's an old person and there's a new person. There's an unregenerate individual, there's a regenerate individual. The unregenerate is fleshly, the regenerate is spiritual. There is no third type of person. You either are saved or you're not. Second, carnal Christianity purports that you can have faith without fruit. My friends, I've got news for you. If you've never heard this, listen up. Faith without fruit is dead faith. Faith is proved or validated by the works or the fruits that it produces. James 2.14 What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? 
James 2.17 says, Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. And when that term dead is joined by the term works, it describes something that is fruitless and sinful. And the fact that it's being by itself identifies this fruitless faith as nothing more than an empty profession. Third, carnal Christianity purports that an individual can be saved, but then live in sin for the rest of their lives without repentance or remorse. The truth is, my friend, all believers struggle with sin, and no believer can claim to be sinless. However, genuine believers who struggle with sin, that's all of us, will always experience the Holy Spirit's prompting in the form of guilt, which leads to repentance. To teach that someone can profess Christ and then go back to living a life of sin does nothing more than deceive countless individuals into a false sense of security and who are on their way to hell. And woe to the individual who teaches such nonsense. This idea of carnal Christianity is propped up upon a twisted understanding of Paul's statement in Romans 7.14, I am carnal. When Paul says that he is carnal, he is expressing his ongoing struggle between his old and new man. Romans 7, 22-25, I joyfully concur with the law in the inner man. I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh the law of sin. You see, to the extent that we struggle with our old nature, we're carnal. However, we are not carnal in the sense that we live a life of continuous disobedience. Those who live continuously disobedient lives are not carnal Christians. In reality, they're unbelievers. They're unregenerate individuals. They profess faith, but they don't possess faith. They do not have the Holy Spirit indwelling them. Which leads us to our twelfth charge. The twelfth charge against false teachers is that they are devoid of the Spirit. Now the verb devoid, may echo, means that these false teachers do not possess the Holy Spirit. It should come as no surprise that they do not possess the Holy Spirit. Because why? They denied and rejected Christ's Lordship. Back in verse 4 and 8. The Holy Spirit works in the believer to enable them to submit to Jesus as Lord and become conformed to the image of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 12.3 I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3.18 We are all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same glory, from glo same image from glory to glory just as from the Lord the Spirit. Now scripture is clear. Anyone who does not possess or have the Holy Spirit is not genuinely saved. Romans 8.9 You are not in the flesh but in the Spirit if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ he does not belong to him. Now this possession of the Holy Spirit is known as the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's indwelling of Christ was promised by Jesus in John 14, 17. The Spirit of truth, 
whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides in you and will be in you. This indwelling is given to all believers at the moment of salvation. Ephesians 1.13 In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Galatians 3.2 This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? So they received the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. And at the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit indwells believers, and believers become His temple. 1 Corinthians 6.19 Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? Now, friends, I want you to listen carefully. Within Pentecostalism, there are many who deny that Christ came in the flesh, who deny that He was God, and go even farther as to claim that he took on Satan's nature on the cross. Charismatic faith healer Benny Hinn states, quote, He who is the nature of God became the nature of Satan when he became sin. I got news for you. He didn't become Satan, he didn't take on Satan's nature, and he didn't become sin. Charismatic leader Kenneth Copeland states, How did Jesus then on the cross say, My God? Because God was not his father anymore. He took upon himself the nature of Satan. Wow. Fellow charismatic preacher Creflo Dollar questions the deity of Jesus. He states, quote, Jesus did not show up perfect. He grew into his perfection. You know, Jesus in one scripture in the Bible went on a journey and was tired. You better hope God don't get tired, but Jesus did. If he came as God and he got tired, he says he sat down by the well because he was tired. Boy, we're in trouble. And somebody said, well, Jesus came as God. Well, how many of you know the Bible says God never sleeps or slumbers? And yet in the book of Mark, we see Jesus asleep in the back of the boat. Now, right there is a clear denial of the doctrine of the hypostatic union of Christ. That is, he became flesh. He's 100% God who took on 100% humanity. He did not cease being God when he became man. And so as a man, yes, he became tired. But he didn't stop being the God who neither sleeps nor slumbers. So because they deny Christ, many in the charismatic movement make the Holy Spirit the focus of their ministry instead of Christ. Former Pentecostal Kenneth D. Johns states that the charismatic churches are so centered on the Holy Spirit. He says this, quote, Jesus is pushed into the background as we try to have an experience of the Spirit. We are being urged to be Holy Spirit-centered instead of Jesus-centered. And the result of this skewed message was an overemphasis on emotional feelings and an exaggeration of expectations as though we could lead supernatural lives in which miracles would overcome all negative circumstances. We were told that if we could get to a state of spiritfulness, we would have supernatural power. Mark this down. To deny that Jesus is God in the flesh, is to deny the testimony of Scripture, and such a denial makes one an antichrist. 1 John 4, 3. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now is already in the world. 2 John 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus as Christ coming in the flesh, 
This is a deceiver and antichrist. And furthermore, if you make the Holy Spirit the focus of your ministry, you have undermined his true ministry, which is to testify of Jesus. John 15, 26 and 16, 4. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me, he will glorify me, for he will take a mine and will disclose it to you. Again, the Holy Spirit's ministry is to testify of and glorify Jesus, not himself. So any ministry empowered by the Holy Spirit ought to be testifying and glorifying Jesus. And anyone who claims to have the Spirit but denies Christ is devoid of the Spirit. They're a false teacher. My friends, in the early church, written or printed materials were largely unavailable to the general public. Hymns, psalms, spiritual songs had to be sung from memory. Often, even the scriptures had to be recited from memory. And as such, believers were forced to develop the retentative memories. So when Jude charges us to remember the apostolic words, those original readers took the task seriously and committed it to memory. And aiding in their ability to remember, the apostles repeated those things which were of utmost importance. Repetition is the key to memorization. Now, in this modern era, books are readily available. The consensus is is that as long as the information uh, can be retrieved from the printed material, there's no need to memorize it. The ready availability of information then has made us lazy in the exercise of our memories. Sadly, facts are memorized for short-term use and then replaced with new information. And this memory problem has infected the modern church. Our hymns, our worship songs, and scriptures are readily available to us in written and digital form. And we praise God for that. But having all of this material at the ready has caused us to suffer from a lack of memory. For example, take any given sermon preached and statistics attest that the listener only retains 30% of the sermon by the end of the day. By the end of the week, you'll only retain 5% of the sermon. See, that the scriptures are filled with charges or commands to remember. It behooves us to exercise our memories, particularly in the realm of scripture, the words of the prophets and the apostles. Committing the scriptures to memory is the best means to safeguard yourself against sin. Your word have I treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. Are you memorizing scripture? Are you committing the scriptures to memory? as well as demonstrated by Peter and Jude, committing the words of the prophets and apostles to memory, safeguards you against false teachers. Remember the words of the prophets and the apostles. Let's pray. Our faithful God, we thank and praise you for this charge to remember. In a day, Lord, when it's so easy just to go find it, you still charge us to remember it. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to that end. The spirit of promise who has come to help us remember all these things, Lord, may we rely on him to help us do that. But we must first read it. We must first strive to learn it and to commit it to our hearts, to our memory. So help us to that end, Father. Lord, I pray that if anyone is listening, is examining themselves, Father, and 
seeing that they've been taken in by false teachers or perhaps them, them have been promoting even some false teaching. And Father God, I pray that if they're truly one of yours, if they're truly genuine, that Lord, you would rouse them, you would awake them, you would cause them to open their eyes and their ears and to hear and to see what is false and bring them to repent of it, Father, to forsake that and to return to the centrality of your truth, your word. Lord, I pray for each of us, Father, that as we put on the whole armor of God, we will not forget the sword of truth. We will not forget the importance of studying the scriptures. Keep us from sin. Safeguard us from false teachers. We pray in your son's matchless name. Amen.